0: Welcome back, listeners. I'm your host, Frank Hans, for the Utah Shakespeare Festival's Play On podcast. Today, we are pleased to sit down with Tony Amendola, who is playing the title role in this season's production of King Lear and the Archbishop of York in Henry IV, Part II. This is Tony's second season at the festival. In 2010, he played the porter in Macbeth and Shylock in The Merchant of Venice. He has performed with many other theater companies, including the Mark Taper Forum, South Coast Rep, American Conservatory Theater, The Old Globe, La Jolla Playhouse, Center Stage, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and the Antaeus Theatre Company, of which he was also a founding member. Tony spent 10 seasons as an actor and director at Berkeley Repertory Theatre, where he was also an associate artist. Tony has acted in many film and television roles, including Blow, Mask of Zorro, Annabelle, John Sayles' Lone Star, Meddler, The Mentalist, CSI Cyber, Being Mary Jane, NCIS, Dexter, Stargate SG-1, and he currently appears in recurring roles in Continuum and Once Upon a Time, in which he plays Geppetto. Well, good day to you, Tony. Thanks for joining us. Here's my pleasure. Would like to start out and ask you a little bit about your own background. How did you become an actor? When did when when did you know that this was the career that you wanted to have?
1: Well, you know, I am the most unlikely person in the world to have become an actor in many ways. as a very uh, sort of blue-collar, working-class uh, background and uh, was going to pursue that into uh, a trade of some kind.
0: Where did you grow up? I grew up in New Haven.
1: Uh-huh. Uh, uh, and uh, which is a very interesting town because it shares a, a real sort of history of uh, sort of a mill town, a, um, almost a Rust Belt town, if you will. Uh, but at the same time, it's quite old. It was established in the late 17th century as a colony, and Yale is there, uh, which was a huge thing for me in the sense of when I woke up, to the world as a larger place, um, I had an opportunity to, uh, you know, go down to the Yale Art Museum and see uh, a Van Gogh or, and it was an English teacher, really, who, who you know, I would hide in the back of the class again. I was working full-time in high school because, you know, I wanted a card, I wanted all those things, and it, if you wanted those things, then... You must work for those things. And I, you know, I did. And
0: uh, What was your job?
1: Uh, I was, um, originally from the time I was eight or nine, I had, I had paper routes. Uh-huh. And that was a dual thing of a, uh, it was a kind of daycare because both my parents worked and there was no one. I, w- I would have been a latchkey kid. I had two older brothers, so I would follow them around a little bit. And then by the time I was really 10, I had my own paper route and, you know, downtown and dealing, you know, and... Uh, and then eventually sort of a neighborhood thing. And, uh, and then in high school, I, uh, again, was on a track. Uh, uh, something happened. I was supposed to go to trade school. And literally on the, the m- couple of mornings before, I decided not to go. And that was sort of, so I went to a regular public school. And in that school, there was an English teacher, uh, my junior and senior year, there were two of them who sort of wouldn't let me sort of retreat into the back of the class, because I was, you know, plenty bright enough, but I was just completely unmotivated in that aspect. I was very motivated to work. I I was working four to 12. But, uh, uh, you know, the notion of talking about things and everything, uh, this is the late 60s, and so was a huge sort of change, and because of that, you know, they suggested that you might want to consider going to college. And it was in college that I uh, literally stumbled into an acting class. Uh, My initial interest was in makeup, in the sense that when I was like 11 or 12, on this paper route, I went in on Halloween, I went into a a man's... um, salon which was completely new at the time and this old friend of my brother's who ran the salon, I would deliver a paper every day he had a friend there who was a makeup artist who had just become a makeup artist Hmm. and they were just chatting and said like this kid I could make him anything he wants to be and the next thing you know I was in a chair as a (laughs) werewolf. I know that sounds completely crazy I still have photos of it and um, I think that's when the bugs sort of bit. Now the interesting thing is that he made me full prosthetic, you know, applied hair, but he never told me how to take it off. (laughs) Well, that night, let me tell you, it was uh, sort of strange, but because of that, I went to, I think that was the interest, but I'm not really artistic. I think you do have to draw, you do have to be very good arts and crafts with, uh, for makeup, and I wasn't, so I stumbled into an acting audition I had a small state school, Southern Connecticut State University now. Reminds me right here being in, you know, Southern Southern Utah Utah State University or Southern Utah University. It's a school very much like this, smallish teacher school, which meant there were probably five women for every man. So they were doing a Shakespeare play and they needed people. And I stumbled (laughs) in, and uh, the rest is sort of history except that the teacher happened to have just retired from, she ran the Yale Drama School for 30 years, and her name was Constance Welch, and she Uh would sit with me every day at lunch when I would, uh, because I was playing a mariner, a very tiny little part, Uh, but I understood. The the Tempest? The Tempest. tempest. Uh And I, and all is lost to prayers to prayers, all is lost. I still remember my first line. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, and I, I actually it's in my mind often in this profession uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I understudied uh, Caliban and Stefano and she would work with me every single day at lunch and that was the first Shakespeare that I ever issued from my mouth She was a very traditional teacher uh, at the time but very very sort of encouraging to me and uh, and then from that it was social it was about a place to belong but the important thing about New Haven is that when all of a sudden I, I woke up and thought, oh, well, who knows, maybe I could do this. You know, it was not in my on my radar. Maybe I could be in the arts. That a 10-minute from my house, a 10-minute walk from my house, I could be at Long Wharf for Yale Rep. So that means I saw John Lithgow, and I saw Christopher Walken, and I saw Roberta Maxwell, and I saw uh, uh, Geraldine Fitzgerald, Milo Shea, um, all these, amaz- uh, John Cazale, uh, all these, am- Al Pacino, all these amazing sort of actors. That was my first exposure. And also to two different aesthetics. One was a company aesthetic, which was Wharf, very much sort of in the tradition of a rep company. And the other one, although it was a rep, uh, their material was really out there, and that was, that was Yale Rep. That was when Bruce Steen was running Yale Rep. And they do stuff like the Watergate, Chronicles, you know, done sort of Hamlet, if you will. I think it was called the Watergate Follies. Hamlet as in the age of Watergate, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, there was just so many actors there uh, that I got a chance to see, uh, you know, um, the Frogs done at the Yale swimming pool. All right. Much of Brecht, uh, Mahagoni, and... Uh, um, uh, Puntala, and uh, Seven Deadly Sins. I mean, just a bunch of uh, Happy End, all those plays that were... Uh, and so those were the initial sort of effects on me, and I, I, it made a mm. huge difference. It sounds like once you discovered this, you just dove right in. You know, once I discovered it, it was. it's a very interesting thing. As I said, I wasn't a student, per se, and all of a sudden I became an excellent student. Now go figure. Really? Because all of a sudden history literature, psychology, it didn't, you know, it was, yeah, it was out there, it was interesting, but I had my life, and I had, and all this, but all of a sudden that had a, a place in my life, to understand literature because of Shakespeare, uh, to understand uh, psychology because of acting, to understand the history of various things, uh, all of it became, made sense to me in a much, the liberal arts made sense to me, and it's, as you know, you know, we deal, we're in a very collaborative, uh, sort of endeavor with many, many uh, facets. And, uh, and so, all of a sudden, bingo. You
0: know. Wow. And so you went, you somehow made it from there to the West Coast. Well, How did that happen?
1: You know, after, after really sort of doing many, many, many uh, plays and sort of living in the theater department, I still realized I didn't have training. So I ended up going to Temple at an MFA program. Uh, And uh, there used to be something called the URTA auditions. And because of the... Still are. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the Urdas were outrageously uh, important to me because at the URTAs, I met... Through the Urdas I got to go to Colorado Shakes during summer. Terrific sort of summer, 75. I 40 years ago. That was my first summer. 75. (laughs) (laughs) Shocking to me. Uh, And through that, I had many friends who went to Ashland and uh and at the second time I went to the Earths, I was offered a job at Ashland uh Now, not being a West Coast actor, I said, "Well, I can't, I'm still in school. I have to finish. I'm doing a play. I didn't know that you' drop everything and go to ashland oh, <laughs> i had and I remember Bill Patton uh who was the uh business manager at the time, just looked at me as if I was like a martian <laughs> but but with great sort of admiration and and sort of warmth uh-huh. and, And so I was lucky enough, turning them down the first time, that they called the second time. And that's when I went out in 78. I had just moved to New York uh, to be the East Coast actor, you know. Acting work, professional acting work, East Coast. I wrote that and put it on a, you know, a stick it or a paste it on my, uh, you know, mirror in my bathroom. And that's what I saw every day. Uh My friends weren't, you know, they were, I had work on the East Coast in terms of summer stock but uh, this was a six month job and I inquired about it and they said no no you must go and it was a wonderful thing because unlike many actors I did what I was trained to do in school immediately which is a rep situation and so I went out for six months in 78 in April of 78 and I still live on the West Coast in (laughs) July of 2015 because that work took me to Seattle for a year, and then when I was in Ashland, I met a gentleman named Michael Wybert, who was the founding director of Berkeley Rep. Saw me in a play. He liked me. We had breakfast, and he said, "I'm moving to a new theater in about a year and a half, two years, and I want you to be part of the company." And I, I said, "Oh, yeah, yes, I'd love to." And then he said, "We're talking minimum commitment five years," and <laughs> I just laughed. I just <laughs> laughed, and he says, "Well, what are you laughing?" I said, "Well, you know." And he says, "No, no, no, I mean it." I, I, I mean it if now if we don't like each other or you don't like being there, then fine, we shake hands and we, we leave. Well, I was there for 10 years. Wow, you know, I met my wife and again it was all rep. The situation of starting in September uh, through the end of May, knowing your casting, I directed, I acted. Uh, and then summers I would do cow shakes. So there were there were in those formative years, Times when I did not have a week off. It's now, amazing. You know, I don't imagine where I got the energy now, but it was, <laughs> it, I was hungry. And, yeah, so.
0: and it's unfortunate. I don't think there are that many opportunities to do that
1: anymore. Well, we're sitting in one. Yeah, now. we are. You know, that's which right. Is one of, It's funny. It is a very important thing. Now, uh, and rightfully so, a lot of the theaters, Ashland, uh, Utah, uh, are getting completely professionalized. But they still have a place. You know, there are a lot of students here from all over. You know, there's a great program in Delaware, obviously Irvine, sensational program. It's very talented. And this school itself, I'm just amazed, you know, with uh, Peter, Sham, and, uh, you know, I mean, the students are just terrific. And to have a place to go do that so you don't end up in New York, L.A., uh, and all of a sudden, next thing you you know, you go from a Shakespeare script to a commercial, Now, there's nothing wrong with a commercial, please understand. You need to have many, many hats to survive in this trade. But to not, you know, have a chance to really do the type of theater that you were trained to do uh, with a, a historical reference that goes back 2,500 years is one of the reasons I do theater. I do film and television, too, but I, you know, opening night of Lear, you're sitting back, dealing with your nerves, dealing with you know the delicacy of wanting to carry this play as a cast to this audience, and to realize that yes, you know, twenty five hundred years ago there was an actor doing Oedipus, or there was a, an actress doing Medea, uh, well, an actor at the time, yeah. <laughs> but uh, and to share that lineage is something you know that I really. Uh, like about this profession and honor about this profession.
0: That's wonderful. And so your first time here was in 2010. How did you end up at Utah Shakespeare Festival?
1: You know, it's very interesting. I had done, as I said, Colorado, Oregon, the Old Globe in San Diego, and a couple of other, uh, and Utah was on the radar, if you will, in, in the sense that I'd never been here. You know, I had never step, set foot in Utah. And so, you know, these things, as you know, I mean, there are open auditions, but a lot of it is really, uh, as you get older, word of mouth and, you know, working relationships. And I would always think, okay, should I write Fred? And I, I'd never met Fred, but I heard he was a lovely gentleman. We had friends in common. Should I just write him? And I, I never did. And then Sharon Ott. I was at Berkeley Rep for I probably did you know maybe eight plays with her at Berkeley Rep when she became artistic director. She sent me an email and the email the title of the, or the heading of the email was Shylock uh, exclamation point and she said, "Would you like you know I'm going to be directing uh, Merchant and uh, would you like to do Shylock if you know I it wasn't an offer I mean she had to go through the channels but uh, she said. You know, I'd really like to have you do it. And I said, sure, sure. Uh, I figured it was a play I loved. I had directed it, but had never acted in it. And I thought, Utah, Zion, Bryce, uh, all this stuff. I mean, how bad could it be? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a summer. And uh, so I didn't know what to expect. And, and I came and I felt uh, all of a sudden just the beauty of the of the surroundings, you know. We actors tend to get self-involved sometimes and, um, you know, get a little edgy and a little touchy. Well, I learned very quickly that all you have to do is drive 25 minutes up to seat break, and it'll put you back into proportion of, mm-hmm. of, of who you are and what your life means in the grand <laughs> scheme of things. Uh, so uh, it was a terrific summer. I had a marvelous, marvelous summer uh, here, and it was really invigorating to to come back and I probably hadn't done a Shakespeare play. Oh, God, I think last year I was at the Old Globe. I'd done workshops of them, but I'd done Symbol, a and Symbol in, you know, eight years previous or something. So it'd been a while. I was due. Uh, and I didn't want Shylock to get away. And uh, so it was terrific. I got a chance to work with Joe and do the Porter as well. That's the other great thing, you know. It's like everything is running. Rep here, so... People have a question about that, but it's the most wonderful thing because you need to be present for the other actor, if you expect them to be present for you the next night. I mean, it's so great, you know. I play the Archbishop of York, and I share a dressing room with Larry, uh, Bull, and uh, you know John, Alin. You know, is you know there's he's one of my knights. It's false that uh-huh. you know what I mean. And the next night, <laughs> the Archbishop of York. You know, I mean, it's it's a great sort of. Um, symbiotic and uh, sort of company in a kind of way. Yeah. Well, I'd love to talk about Lear for a little bit,
0: but I want to just bounce back to one thing that you said before um, about about sort of balancing the work that you do on stage with screen work and TV and film. And I think you, you've been able to do that in a way that a lot of actors here, actors that I've talked to this season, really aspire to. And I'm wondering how that's happened. Has it just been sheer luck that you've been able to do both, or has that been a strategy on your part?
1: You know, it was never a strategy, but I did not, I had an interest in it, and I've never been one to separate myself into, I am a theater actor, and that's, all the rest of it is nonsense. Nor in film and television to say, well, why would I do theaters? You know, I've always, I think I'm, uh, right now we're, 21st century uh, sort of artisans dealing in this stuff, so I think you need to make peace with it. What happened with me, uh, I was helped a little bit in that, you probably recall, the aesthetic changed in the mid-80s from a company-oriented viewpoint, where there was, you know, Ford Foundation and uh, Carnegie Foundation grant money to establish companies, into more of an auteur director centric theater and because of that uh, you know I watched it change uh, when I was in the Bay Area there were you know I was in a company of 12 at Berkeley Rep and there were maybe 35 at ACT those are all actors working directing teaching and that well dried and in the European model of uh, you know from Eastern Europe and everything of this sort of uh, central vision from film into theater uh, wasn't as welcoming to a company not because they disliked companies but because they wanted the perfect person in the role they didn't want to be saddled with um, you know to fill out a company it was very sad because it meant the to me I always thought it was sort of odd because it meant the director was allowed to grow but the, the actors weren't allowed to grow but because of that change it was a reality companies began to get downsized And there was a window. All of a sudden, uh, a project fell through. uh, And all of a sudden, there was a window where I had nothing. And I thought, well, it's now or never. It was in 89, 88, 89, and 90. I dabbled in L.A. So I went down. Let's give it a shot. And I was lucky to get into a play immediately. There was a play called Tamara, which was the grandfather of all the environmental things. It was about an artist, uh, Tamara Delempitzka, who was, uh, you would recognize, the sort of roadster, the, the blonde woman in the cap and the roadster, and very sort of really interesting. She was a Polish artist. And she met Gabriella D'Annunzio, who was an Italian sort of poet, fascist. And they wrote a play about it. And when I, I fell into it in L.A., so while I was getting an agent, while I was getting established, I had a place to be at night because of the theater, a huge gift, Uh, and I uh, just sort of lucked out, Um, we're all prisoners of what we look like, and probably the hardest thing in LA is not to know what to do with a person, well, they saw me and they figured I could play, uh, uh, you know, heavies. You know, I played a lot of drug dealers, I played a lot of creepy guys. (laughs) You know, just simply because of, you know, my skin tone, my skin texture, you know, what I look like. And it's very useful because it served me up into a point where I had enough credits that I could do different things. Uh, And it took a couple of years, but uh, it was a wonderful thing because it expanded everything. It gave me a great respect for film and television. I mean, we do what we do on stage with four, six weeks' rehearsal. To be able to come in and do it is, to see good work on television, and it's amazing how much good work there is now. Uh, is shocking, and, uh, and it's very, very quick, and it was a different skill. It also gave me, it opens up your acting in that uh, I feel like in the great plays, there's such a respect for the text and rightfully so, that you forget about the acting. You almost hide behind the text. You can see in Shakespeare sometimes people just doing the the form of it and not really breaking through and using the form as a kind of trampoline to try to get to something. You don't always get there. But uh, I had a teacher who sort of recognized that, uh, a guy named Milton Casales, who sort of knew he, he had a rep actor coming in who had done a lot of different classics. And now he wanted me to um, to be maybe not as respectful for the script, to be more empowered as an actor, to, hmm. to question. And that was very useful to me. Now, because he trusted that I would never, that it was in my DNA not to do anything sacrilegious, to the, that I wouldn't do that. Yeah. It's just, I would not do that. And he was right. So he sort of forced me into, you know, uh, a more... Um, improvisational approach and everything, and that's very useful in uh, film and television, particularly uh, uh, television, I think, you know, where, where the script is, can be flexible, you know, uh, or they're trying to sort this thing out, and um, so anyway, uh, you know, and uh, I have wonderful experiences, and I've, I've enjoyed doing particularly the movies that are sort of like theater, you know the two Zorro films uh, are an example of you know it's dress up, it's horses, it's well, you know in, in theater you know we've in in Henry IV Part Two we've been on the horses and then we get off and we come on we have our gloves, as, uh, riding gloves and everything. Well, in films you get the horses. You get to ride the horses. You know, and uh, Zorro One and Two were great, and it's very interesting. Uh, you know, I've been doing theater, you know, supporting myself. You know, a real just a People don't understand, the only thing they understand about actors are starving and star. They don't understand working class, what we all do, the people that every day get up and work in the theater and have a life. They have a family, they have a home, they, have, they, they do fine. Uh, and so it was sort of a surprise to me, you know, I had done Iago and... You know, Vanya at ACT and all. You know, in Berkeley Rep. You know, I mean, it's just tons of work. And people would say after Zorro, "Oh boy, you, you, you've, you've made it." Now. You know, <laughs> and you're like, "No, it's, it's just a different facet." I yeah. don't feel like I appreciate that you, you think I've made it now, but I, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't feel that way. I think it's a different job. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I'm rambling. So. No,
0: no, it's very interesting. It also sounds like um, the that notion of not holding the text so sacred has informed your stage work too and what you've done in in Shakespeare.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, yes. Uh, You know, I would say it has, but again, with a healthy respect, I work work from the text, but, you know, and, you know, you see it. I think, you know, some of the actors definitely, you know, when you watch uh, uh, Brian and, uh, you know, Brian Vaughn and David, you know, work, you, you see the ease. It's just a matter of not using the text to help you and not, <laughs> and not right. put you in a straitjacket. You know? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, let's talk about King Lear A oh, little, little project you're working on these days. Talk about, talk just generally first about the experience of playing King Lear. You've been on stage now for a few weeks with audiences and working on it
1: for months more before that. Uh, in some ways, I feel like I'm just ready to begin rehearsals. Hmm. No. Uh, it, it's it's great to talk to you about it because you were in the room. Um, Lear's daunting. It is. I mean, you hear so much about it, uh, you know, as this kind of mountaintop and, and this. And it truly is, uh, in some ways, you know, an iconic, you know, um, just one of the great works if you if you look at shakespeare to me you know hamlet is the masterpiece of youth and lear obviously is the masterpiece of age now they intersect to me by asking the same question that most theater most drama asks which is who are we who am i you know lear literally says it can anyone tell me who i am yep. you know as as you know these things are changing so with Lear, I just read a lot about it. Um, I had seen, uh, obviously, I'd seen some of the great, uh, you know, the Peter Brook uh, really, really stripped-down version and some other versions uh, over the years, uh, and you just, you know, I just read it and read it and sort of think about it and let it, let it, sort of enter you in a kind of way and you think, okay, Lizzie's, obviously it's King Lear, he's a king, well that doesn't resonate really that much for me to be honest with you, I know I have to play that but nor do I think it would resonate that much to our modern audiences I think it becomes one of those unlike in the history plays where it's essential, in, in this type of play I don't think it is uh, I tended to think and concentrate more on a father and more on a, on a CEO, a, a, a millionaire magnet, a billionaire, a, a person who, whose status is such that he, uh, he has trouble finding truth in people because they're so invested in his words. And so there's a flattery becomes an element. But basically to me, it's about an education. It's about the education of a man. Um, it's about folly. Uh, it's about need Uh, you know what do we need need becomes a huge word in the play reason not the need you know Um, uh, it becomes just the kind of awakening Uh, you know his journey is so so human from a guy who's just completely self centered completely Uh, and they told me I was everything, he says when he's mad. And, he, you know, he, he believed it. He believed his own PR. Uh, <laughs> and just to follow that journey and to take that journey, uh, there's also something in the play that's really, I think, problematic, and Shakespeare does it a lot. It's, Lear's motivation is written about quite a bit at the beginning of the play, why he does what he does. And it's a little bit like Leontes in that You will never know. Uh, Sharon, you know, we sort of chose to take an interesting tact, you know, on the beginning that I think ultimately is, really pays off over the course of the play, which is to make the journey as far as possible. So he's not, they talk about kind Lear in some of the, uh, um, historical criticism and everything, even when, I think on Burbage, when Burbage, uh, played Lear, uh, they talked in his, uh, the epithet. They talked about his kind Lear. Well, I read the script. I, di- I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. I didn't see kindness in Lear at the beginning of the for the first three acts of the play. Uh, and uh, you know, they, they talk about uh, him in so many different ways that you eventually, you absorb it all and then you simply have to make a choice of who you think he is, where you want to start and commit to it with the Great relief knowing that the play will still exist regardless of what happens, what you've done to it. And <laughs> and if anyone has a problem with those choices, the play is there for their for – the, they should do a they production. They can do it now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, so it, it's just that. I mean, I also um, – I just jot down things. Uh, yeah, I you've jot got down. a journal here. <laughs> yeah, it's not even really – it's just, you know, things I come across – uh, you know, there was an article on suffering, which is also a real part of the play, how we inflict suffering on others and ourselves. Uh, there's stuff about love. Uh, there's, there's, stuff, uh, there's stuff from um, St. Paul to the Corinthians. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, we know that. Uh, there's all of those things that try to take you to where this man is because you try to create a human being. You try to create someone. It's very important for us to do that because unlike a musician or a painter where you admire an abstract painting or you watch someone play Chopin or someone play all of those things, that you hardly any of us would think, oh, I could do that. But an actor, everyone's thinking, no, wait a I was. I had a fight with my kids. I had an argument with my wife. I had... Uh, these difficulties. And so the the meter for um, artifice and the meter for, uh, <laughs> you know, they're, they're sensitive to that. So you, you need to take your experience on your back and just sort of oddly commit to it. And once you do that, it becomes easier. You're not simply in awe of the play, which is so huge. I mean, it deals with so many things and their opposites yeah that's what's so fascinating. fascinating it deals with everything and yet the key word in the play is nothing yeah. you know um so it's my first uh real crack at it and um and it's been rewarding it's it's been you know i i keep friends will write and say, Well how's it going and i i can honestly say it's been very very rewarding for me and you know outrageously challenging and rewarding fulfilling and I only hope that the three hour or two hour and forty-five minute investment that the audience gives that they are rewarded for that. And that's all I can. <laughs>
0: hope. Well, in listening to you talk about developing the character, it seems like playing King Lear is a little like playing good jazz, in that there's a there's a series of progressions that this character has to make and and there's a certain technical side of of the craft that you have to bring to it in order to tell that story clearly. But there's a great deal of stuff that happens in the in-between moments um, within that journey that really has to be agile and nimble and adapted both to you as an actor, to the other actors on stage, and to the audience as well. I'm wondering how, in your process, you've you've sort of balance that coming up with the specificity and clarity of what you're trying to do in an individual moment with the kind of broader strokes of the music that you're making?
1: Yeah, no, that's an excellent uh, sort of question. And the notion of jazz is a, a terrific, you know, with, with the text and with the um, variations on the same... Sort of, you know, uh, the father, the madman, the uh, the awakened being, the uh, human being. Um, You. It's a combination of doing your homework at home, so that you have images and you have roles: father, king, uh, madman, mad father, mad king. You know, uh, uh, you you have just little shots, and then you, then you, hopefully. Are receptive enough to what the other actors give you, so that you can create. So then it comes sp- spontaneous from from them. It's interesting, you know, when you work on a script, you have your lines, but it's almost more important to study the other lines and figure out where the trigger for your line comes. Does it come from something someone has said? And the most easy example is what time is it? Oh, it's nine o'clock. Well, that came because Frank asked me what time. Or does it come from an idea that this, that Frank has just given me that makes me think of it? Or is it something I'm initiating? And all of those things are important. Uh, A, to just keep you in the room so that you're listening to the other actor and you're not uh, uh, sort of daydreaming and stuff like that. And But ultimately, you hope by doing all of that, something will happen, something, uh, there'll be sort of, uh, you'll be forced to do something, forced to uh, uh, create something. And those are the best moments. And that's why it can often happen when you're fatigued. Hmm. It's so strange, you know, those breakthrough moments where all of a sudden you have a revelation can come often latent, you know, texts and at just at the time when you don't want to do it again and for some reason because your mind is out of the way and you're just dealing on purely on instinct. The other important thing is to make yourself available because this this becomes very hard, particularly if you're a studious actor, is that you you study it, you you score it, and you think that's the way it goes. And then when people the other actors when your Cordelia doesn't think that's the score that's the music you got a problem and then you have tension so you really need to reconcile yourself that the Lear or the Hamlet is is a group it's it's a cake that's made of all the individuals in the room and not just you and the great thing about this play is that's one of the themes of the play is that any time, you know, they told me I was everything, it's about a man who thought he was it. He was the... And it's the acceptance that he's not, and in a kind of way they say, you know, uh, he's a man who's lost everything. He's lost his family. He's lost this kingdom. He's lost this status. He's lost uh, uh, his sanity. And in the process has found his humanity. And it's is just so... So wonderful. But you have to include everyone in the room. They have to, to do that. Otherwise, it, makes, it can make for a miserable uh, situation because then you're thinking, well, she's not doing or he's not. It, it, this is an ongoing struggle. I don't mean that this is always a war. <laughs> it's also yeah. with the director and the actor. The director thinks, oh, it should go this way. I'm, I'm sorry. Don't, I don't think so. so. I don't <laughs> think so. You yeah, know, And you work it out.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it seems like a pivotal... Um, Piece of Lear's relationship, and you've talked about this as well, is with his three daughters, and it's clear in this production you have a, a, a sense of having very different relationships with each of the daughters. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you perceive Lear's relationship with Goneril, Regan, and Cordelia, what those relationships are.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great sort of question, and. That again was sort of an organic thing. You can decide beforehand. but ultimately you have to come in the room and you have to look Melinda and Saren and uh, Kelly in the eye. and yeah. Now in some ways, uh, Kelly is easy uh, because she's everything to him. She's the one soft place that he at the beginning of play that he still has. The one the one place that's still receptive. And, and Kelly, oddly, uh, reminds me of a dear friend who's mm-hmm. much older. But she just, uh, her voice, everything, it's just, just the way she moves, her, her personality. So it was not, it was not, uh, uh, d- it's not difficult to fall in love with, with, uh, with Kelly. Um, uh, Melinda, Saren with Goneril and Regan, it's, um, it became very, very uh, interesting. Interesting. Uh, Reagan made some choices that made sense to me of where she sits. I don't want to spoil it too much. as But there are choices that it's a kind of mental attitude and the physicality that is the middle child. And then we're left with Melinda. Now, Melinda, to me, the one thing you you learn is that, I mean, it's just completely truth. I mean, she's just, she's just there. It's just there's no denying it. There's no artifice. She's just there for you. And, uh, and so, with her, it became clear with her strength and her, her presence that, in some way, she was the closest thing to Lear. She was the closest. Uh, and, and through some personal sort of things, you know, with my brothers and everything like that, sometimes that can be difficult with the first, the, you know, uh, in, in my case, it was the eldest son it wasn't me, but one of my you, my brothers, you know. That relationship with the father can be very, very difficult because it's a sort of threatening, sort of. Uh, and I thought, oh, oh, well, that will be good because there's something at the core. Lear, I think, admires Cordelia immensely. In terms of in terms of skills, in terms of actual skills, I think, admires. But there's something between them that. Just rubs the wrong way. And I think it, you know, you create, as an actor, you create your own history yeah. for that. Uh, in the same way, it's the, uh, if you will, the oil and vinegar, the Abbott and Costello between Melinda, uh, Goneril, and uh, Cordelia, that they're, they're opposites. And Regan, at the beginning of the play, he it's almost like she doesn't think m- much about her in a kind of way. And that's what's so wonderful in the play, because in the first scene, you assume the tension at the beginning is more between uh, Goneril and Lear. I mean, that's the, And obviously, Cordelia, everything is fine. But over the course of the act, you learn that Regan is the... Because she's covered. At least with Goneril, their tension is out. It's right there. The, no one is lying to each other. Uh, but with Regan, all of a sudden, she changes. And that's a huge thing for Lear. Because that's, he, that, he, he gets rid of, uh, uh, of Cordelia, you know, in madness and folly. He, he estranges himself from Goneril. The only one he has left is Regan. And when Regan, that, you know, it's like bullets in a gun. You know, the first bullet he puts in is uh, his rage at Cordelia and his need for this. As you get older, you know, this is a very human thing you would think you're a formed human being and love and appreciation would not be important to you. It's more important to you. Validation is more important. And it becomes really a problem. Appreciation, the need to feel that you want it. So all of a sudden, when Cordelia well, If all of these... If this family would get in the room together <laughs> without people... I try and play a public event at the beginning. There's no sense in ignoring the audience. So... It's not Cordelia saying these things, you know... We're on the dinner on table. The table, yeah. ...where, you know, or if we're having a disagreement, Frank can get up and leave and we can sort this out. No, I mean, we're sort of stuck there. So he... There's that kind of thing, but that, you know, Cordelia's the first bullet. Then he gets rid of Kent. Then uh, he estranges himself from Godwell. Uh And then... It's uh, um, Regan. Then... There's the storm. And then all of a sudden, I mean, there's even the fool is gone. You know, and now he... So all of those, you have to sort of track that and not know... It's interesting, at the beginning of the play, you can't know there's a gun on the table. But there is a gun on the table for all of us. You know, we're only six bullets away from where Lear is, yeah. <laughs> you know, six <laughs> events in our life, yeah. and, um, and that's what you try to track, and you try, as you're structuring the role, you try not to get ahead of yourself. You, uh, a lot of people talk about, you know, there are 11 scenes in Lear, Lear is present in 11 scenes, and, you know, over the course of reading it uh, and reading about it, you know, people say you'll never get all 11. You will never get all 11. No one has ever got all 11. So you have to reconcile yourself to that and, um, and just figure out a way. For instance, I hated doing the storm and the trial and the whatchamacallit scene at the beginning of rehearsal because I had no idea. Now I love doing the scene hmm. because now they're resolved and you found your way. It's your organic way. You know it, you're thinking. It becomes very, in madness. Even in madness, there's a logic. It's not random. I'll give you an example. I had a friend, who used to work with vets and uh, for post-traumatic stress, and she worked with schizophrenics. And I always remember something she told me. She used to work with puppets, with the uh, you know with the vets and with schizophrenics. And there was one gentleman particularly she was working with, and it was going great. He got on his meds, everything was fine. They had you know he would talk to the thing, you know, and then she went back like, I don't know. 10 days later or something, and he was completely off, just completely off, and she worked with him, worked with him, trying to get him, what is the matter, you were doing so well, what is the matter, well, she finally figured out, he told her what the matter was, is he was lonely. Now, why was he lonely? He missed his voices, and that still stays with me. He, you know, so, so that was the logic of how he got to a place where people will say, oh, he's just mad. The same logic exists in every mad scene that Lear has, uh, the trial. It's a trial. Kent says, "Don't you want to go to sleep?" No, no. It's like, no, I have to. Wa- I have to watch Perry Mason. Yeah. Well, how would you ask me Do I want to go. No, we have to do this trial. The same thing when he comes in, uh, with uh, with uh, Edgar and Gloucester in the fourth act, the great sort of thing. He's raising an army. That's what it's not. He's coming in saying, Oh, I'm going to be silly and say, make out like I think this is money. Here's your press money. No, it's come on, guys, you know, you know, do it luxury, pell mell. I, I, I lack like soldiers, you know. I mean, so it's very important that even in madness, that you have something you're trying to solve. So, you know, it helps you enormously. So. Yeah, yeah,
0: another. Um, component that you've talked about of king lear is this idea of aging and um i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you've taken on this idea of aging the 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 physical being of lear the soul of lear the mind of lear in, in your development of this character
1: no, that's that's um sort of gets to the core of the thing yeah it? <laughs> um yeah. I uh, basically went and looked at various videos about Alzheimer's. About uh, the, the big thing now, of course, is we live in this age where everything is documented, so you can actually you could actually do a production w- with Lear having Alzheimer's and a progression of it, and everything. I think that's possibly one of his fears that he is the beginning of the play, you know, he's he's losing it a, a little bit. I try to put that in just a hair because it, I ultimately decided, I did a lot of research on it, and I ultimately decided that I wanted to be careful that I didn't want it to make it a question of mental illness or a physical disease because then it would let Lear off the hook. It would let him as a human being, then you could say, no, it's the Alzheimer's. No, it's the Lewy body uh, uh, syndrome. No, it's the Parkinson's. I didn't, I wanted to be careful of that. I think it develops over the course of the play. What I try to do is uh, initially, like all of these great uh, sort of roles, they're exceptional people. Hamlet is an exceptional person. Macbeth, Othello, and Lear, you know, the four great things. So consequently, I... They talk about him being 80, but I think in our terms, he's probably my age. He's that, He has that kind of vitality, you know, and I'm in my 60s. He has that kind of it. He's not, you know, shaking. I didn't want to go. Yeah, he's not yeah. doddering. He's not all yeah. those things. I think he's 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 a lion in winter. Mm-hmm. That was the image I thought. He's a lion right at the last, this is his last hurrah. And it's almost, it's funny because he says, you know, I'm going to basically uh, resign all power and, but behind it is and you'll see what that's like to carry that you, you'll see you know and and it sort of gives him a farther thing to fall uh, so all of a sudden the shakes the the confusion develops over the course of the play I didn't want to have it at the beginning um, even uh, uh, Chris Chris Duval I mean he's sort of uh, the fight person we were talking about how uh, after I'm I'm completely exhausted and asleep, and it's half-naked, and Kent uh, uh, picks me up, and how to do that and maintain and not maintain my vitality, and, you know, so that he almost sort of rolls up, that he, he loses over the course of the first three acts. And I think it's a wonderful sort of transformation, because you see this guy who just thinks he's at the top. He's just everything, physically, you know, you know, and then he's just this doddering, shaken sort of being. And then when he comes into the fourth act, then it, he's got an adrenaline rush of vision. He's finally seeing the world for it. So he's a little manic. He's a little manic. Uh, and so that physicality is very, very useful uh, for the actor to create the uh, the journey of the character. So the audience sort of understands we also you know through uh rachel who designed the uh clothes we also and sharon uh, it was a real progression he's very covered at the beginning you know his leather doublet and this robe and these jewels and the crown and then gradually you know he has less and less, he becomes shared, yeah. he becomes sort of naked and, and and one of the things i really love was we found uh, i get a blanket and that to me is the first real hint of age. A couple of things. It's funny, you know, uh, I, it's funny how strange things happen. In the fight, when Kent defends Lear, when Oswald comes at Lear, which is generally, Oswald is sort of a cringy sort of character, and Sharon and uh, Drew were, uh, went a different way. And, uh, and initially I thought, well, you know, I'm the king, and I'm all, and then it occurred to me Uh, I I take a swing at Oswald, he grabs me, he pushes me. And I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, that is the first time that someone has done something like that to me. And it becomes like an awakening of his age. Because this is a guy who, you know, he's not as young as he thinks he... he, And Kent steps in, of course, and that builds the... Kent is Caius. But all of those things... That's an example of of sort of twisting something that you think okay it's all about strength in the first three it's all about strength it's all about so that you can fall and no it shouldn't be that way and then you think you know wait a minute that would make me be much more appreciative of Kant. I need a bodyguard now yeah and it's there's sort of a vulnerability there yeah. that that hasn't existed before it hasn't existed and it covers it very quickly but still and it's you know all of a sudden it becomes very vulnerable emotionally and physically over the course. And that's why it's sort of interesting. Uh, people always toy with putting the uh, the fool in the first act, in the first scene. And uh, you know Sharon was trying it, and it's always sort of... And I'm thinking, well, why doesn't it work? I mean, why didn't Shakespeare write it? And it occurred to me that if the fool is in... Now, the fool is in the prologue, which is great. I love the prologue. But if the fool is in the first scene, he's going to say something. He has to say something. And if he does say something, Lear is gonna get rid of him, and then who's gonna educate Lear? It's funny, Lear. You know, the first tutor is the is the fool. He gets to say the things, the most profound things that we all struggle with, including you know, the big lesson for all of us. Thou shalt thou thou shouldst not have been old, till thou hadst been wise. You know, uh, and those types of things. But the physical is is very important as part of the journey it's just and that's the awakening it's all of a sudden uh, a man who's never really cared he's lost the ability to care for other people that much all of a sudden in the storm scene begins to care I and mean, a lot of people talk about that first when the uh, you know kant and the fool are trying to get him inside into the hovel and he says to the fool you go now, it, we do it very quickly, but still, it's... And he has the Great Awakening. You know, the interesting thing about Lear, and this I have to say this, uh, unlike all three of the other characters, he has no soliloquies.
0: <laughs>
1: and the play deals with self-knowledge, learning about yourself. And that's why he doesn't. The only one that approaches a soliloquy is the poor naked wretches, and that's huge. Because it's the first time he through circumstance, finds himself in the situation of how three-quarters of the world is. Exposed, vulnerable. And he finds himself there, and it's a huge awakening for him. And it's so wonderful. And, and part of his madness is he's talking, you know, I thought, oh, oh he says, I'm going to pray. Well, he doesn't really pray, doesn't he? He doesn't talk to God. I think that's what he thinks he's going to do. And, in, and something happens, and he doesn't. He doesn't kneel. And I remember Sharon wanted me to kneel. You're going to go upstairs and kneel. I said, no, 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 no. You know, yes, I I can go like I'm going to kneel, but then it all becomes about the hidden masses that are out there. Mm -hmm. It's all poor naked wretches, whosoever you are. You know, and and through that, he he begins to sympathize with other human beings, and then he makes the humongous discovery that, no, not only is he like them, he is the cause of them on some part, that he... I have taken too little care of these, and homelessness and all of those things that all of a sudden being bubbling up and the thing that still strikes me, and I think it has to do with his madness, that after that speech, which is to the poor naked wretches, it's as if he conjured poor Tom, and that's what's so bizarre that's why all the is 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 he real? is it because I've just been talking and this this spirit and all of a sudden at that moment. Uh, It's like and in tag team wrestling, uh, it's no longer the fool that's his instructor. It's Porta, yeah, that's his instructor. Uh, And it's it's just the last we see of the fool then. Yes, yeah. Yeah, Well, the fool begins and and then it's so wonderful. David Pichette, all of a sudden, and David, being a great actor, realizes he doesn't like that. He doesn't like being just like Lear doesn't like being uh, deposed or you know replaced. The fool so the fool is actually very harsh with. (laughs) <laughs> with angry yeah, so growls at <laughs> him. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, our time is coming oh to a God. close here, Thank but so um, about. I
0: I so appreciate all the insights that you've brought. Um, I want to ask you one last question, which is, now that you've worked on Lear for for several months and have gotten it into performance, what have, what have you learned about yourself from playing this character?
1: What I. You know, all these, a lot of parents come to me and uh, say, you know, can my daughter be an actress? Can Will my son be an actor? Can they, you know? And I, I have to say, I don't know. But I say, you know, if you put them in a good school and they're working on the great classic plays and they're working on Shakespeare and they're working on Chekhov and they're working, that through the ideas, and uh, philosophies and journeys of these great characters, they may or may not become, quote-unquote, working actors, but they'll become better human beings, I think. You know, uh, it, I never had a chance to do Hamlet. It was, just wasn't in the cards. I, I, it didn't make sense. I was more to get a chance to do Cyrano, for instance, you know, but I was never a Hamlet. Uh, but Lear, from the moment I read it, I always thought, I could do this. I could do this. And it has to do with a kind of uh, enjoyment of, of introspection and a kind of searching through yourself and a and a willingness to occasionally trouble yourself. Um, and so I'm... you know, you don't it just becomes a wonderful... I don't want to say, oh, you know, this is the most blah, 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 blah. Uh-huh. blah but it is humanizing. It is humanizing. There is... Um, it's funny, when we were working at the beginning of the play, there's a coldness to the character in the first act, an abruptness, a casualness with other people's feelings and everything. And I remember, you know, Sharon, we were pushing in that way. I never quite understood why. She was going there, was puzzled to me. Why does it have to be this and that? But then I thought, you know, I'm just not gonna argue with this. I'm, I, you know, there's, every so often you come to your senses and you say, let's not argue with an idea. Let's argue with something concrete, which means the actor, actress has to jump in and do it 100%. And then they can talk to the director. Well, I did it. And I remember coming off and feeling really sort of rather depressed. And rather, it's sort of just awful. You know, not, you know. And Sharon sent me a note the next day, with, with the, and she says, that's it. And it finally hit me that that's how the character feels at that moment. If you can get, that's how he feels. <laughs> so there's a sense, it becomes, is a, a great diamond with facets. And that all of us, you know, so many people have written, you know, uh, every old man is King Lear. In some way, in some fashion, uh, and and these great plays, this character has me examining the foibles of humanity, the pitfalls, and the great the great simplicity and joy that's available to us without any any of the trappings that society says is essential to happiness. You know, uh, you know, I have worked. you know, very, very hard as an actor, and I've always sort of earned my living, and uh, you do film and television, and you have great years, and it's never really made me happy. It's never, it's never, I've never could say, oh, I, you know, that made me happy to have more. And Lear gets, again, getting back to the word need, what do we really need to be a human being, to be happy, to be a father, to be all, all, and it makes you examine those questions again. and the answers change. If I did it 10 years from now, it would change. But it would always, you, you'd be living on the side of the angels at the end of this play, you know? Great disappointment with society and our and our failures, but also just the simplicity of... Uh, Lear, Im, Lear imagines heaven to be a prison where he's he's in with one other person, which is... Cordelia. You know, and that's what love and humanity is is that kind of simplicity and it uh, and that that's the journey of the play in a kind of way. and to be on a a journey like that every night and to try every several nights in rep and to try to climb that ladder is a is a challenge, but it's ultimately uh, just the best job in the world. I think <laughs> Wonderful.
0: Thank you very much. This was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Play On Podcast. Be sure to go back and listen to past interviews on the festival webpage. Check out the latest episode released every Friday with your favorite directors, actors, and designers from our 2015 season.